Chapter 10 of The Finding of Holgrin by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One Stroke for Freedom. In the subterranean chamber of the moon, where the angry red of still deeper fires flared fitfully, where winged demons, like evil creatures of a drug-crazed dreamer's mind, darted shrieking through the sulphurous air, it was a slender, blue-eyed girl who took control of events. She it was who, when the explosion of detonite had ceased, saw the fall of a body from high above. She saw it strike upon the mound of dead moon beasts, saw the homely human features as the body rolled to the floor, and it was she who threw herself upon it protectingly when one of the enemy wounded dragged his broken wings trailing across the stone, that he might reach that human face with his distended claws. A man, Anita Hallgren screamed. It's a man. Help me. And Chet was beside her in an instant to drag the limp body to safety. Spud, he shouted. It's Spud O'Malley. He never went back. He came down here to save us. He grabbed up the gun where it had fallen, saw the empty magazine then flung himself down beside the unconscious figure of Spud while he tore at the fastenings of the second weapon. "'His suit!' he shouted to the girl. "'Get his suit!' "'It's there where he fell. Bring yours and mine, too.' He was hardly able to gauge his own strength here, where all weights were one-sixth of their equivalent on earth. He stooped and swung the chunky body of Spud across his shoulder as easily as he would have lifted a child, and, having done it, he was entirely at a loss as to where to go. Across the room was a throng of leaping, flapping things. More were pouring in from open doors. Chet stood hesitant and bewildered, until Anita spoke. Come, she called, and darted toward a narrow entrance. The clamorous shrieking from the horde of moon-beasts marked their swooping assault upon the two, and Chet paused to send them three shots that checked the advance. Then, with the body of Spud held tightly, he sprang where Anita had gone. She was waiting, but gave Chet no chance to question her. Come, she commanded again, and ran on as before, but as Chet gained her side, she offered between gasping breaths an explanation. Five years they kept us, like animals in a cage. But there was a place, a sacred place, they let us go there. And they let us make signal lights from outside. They called it magic. And now Firthjof has escaped. He will go to the sacred room. Only there would he be safe. They had turned and twisted through narrow passages. Anita, it seemed, was plotting a course through less frequented thoroughfares of this strange city. But they came at last to a vast auditorium, into which they peered from a half-open door. The room was of preposterous size, and Chet marveled at the minds that had conceived and wrought so tremendous an undertaking. And he saw plainly in his own mind the throngs of serene-faced beings who must have folded their white wings softly about them to gather there for worship. But more plainly still he saw 
the jostling, squealing crowd that was there that instant before his eyes. Hundreds of them, thousands it might be, and the sound of their shrill voices made hideous echoes from the high-flung ceiling of the great hall. The dry rustling of their leather wings was an unceasing rush of sound. Some who seemed to be leaders stood above the rest on a platform which formed the base of a terraced formation against the far wall of the room. Even at a distance, Chet could see and wonder at the simple beauty of that place of metal and jewels where the great ones of an earlier race had once stood. Back of those who harangued the crowd, the terraces built themselves up to a pyramid against the rock wall, and on either side, opening upon the platform base, was a doorway of noble proportions, whose metal doors of burnished reds and browns were closed. The sacred room, whispered Anita, beyond those doors, Firthjof has closed them. He is there. I know it. I know it. Chet was still holding the body of O'Malley. Only his choked breathing showed that he still lived. But now he stirred and struggled in Chet's grasp, while he struck out blindly and hoarse sounds came from his throat. Chet clapped one hand over the pilot's mouth. For the love of heaven, Spud, he said fiercely, be still. Don't speak. Don't say a word. It's Chet, Chet Bullard. I've got you. We're all right. The pilot's struggles ceased, and Chet eased him to the floor, where he sat still gasping for breath. The fumes from that place of death had been strangling in his throat. Beside him, Chet heard the girl repeating in softest tones the name she had heard for the first time. Chet, Chet Bullard. How odd a name, but I love it. I couldn't help but love it. In the great room, where some who had turned toward the sound of Chet's scuffling, they were walking slowly toward the half-open door. Come, said Anita Hallgren again, and fled like a slender, golden-haired wraith down the narrow hall. More twisting passages until Chet was hopelessly lost. But he no longer needed to carry O'Malley, who was running beside him and he had implicit faith in the girlish guide who went before. He was not surprised when they came, after many detours, to a narrow door of wrought metals in white and gold, whose inset designs were worked in glowing jewels. Nor was he surprised when the door opened in response to a series of knocks from Anita's hand that spelled S.O.S. in the code he knew, and a man whose long hair and beard hung about a face as handsome as that of a Viking of old, stood motionless in that doorway. But the surprise of the flaxen-haired giant can only be imagined when a young man who he had never seen on earth or moon stepped forward from his sister's side with outstretched hand. I am Bullard, said the slim young man, master pilot of the world, or at least that was my rating, up to the time I left in search of you. And now, Pilot Hallgren, we've a ship outside, and, if you care to go back with us... And with equal casualness, the blonde Viking replied, You came in search of us. You saw our signals, after all this time. Yes, we shall be glad to go back with 
We shall be glad, yes. But his deep, rumbling voice broke into something like a sob, and he turned with outstretched arms to stumble blindly toward his sister, who buried her face in his torn and ragged blouse. You came in search of us. You came through space just to find and rescue us. Holgren, it seemed, could not recover from the effects of this unbelievable fact. He was gripping hard at the hand of Chet Bullard, while his other great arm was thrown about the shoulders of Spud O'Malley. But now that you are here, what is to be done? Every exit will be guarded. We are shut off from the outer world by a hundred locked doors and by thousands of those beasts. He took his arm from Spud's shoulder to point toward the great doors beyond which was a rising clamor of shrill sound. They will break in here soon. They would have been here before had they known of the old lost entrance of the priests that Anita and I found. We're as bad off as ever, I'm afraid. There will be no holding them now. I can hold some, said Chet, and touched his weapon. Holdgren nodded his shaggy head. Some, but not many of the thousands we must face before we ever fight our way through to the outer world. No, my friend Bullard, that will never save us. We are doomed. But Chet, unwilling to accept or share the other's convictions, was seeing again the great room beyond those doors, a room of vast proportions, of high-arched, vaulted ceiling, where sweeping curves all centered and ended in one tremendous central point. It hung down, that point, a blazing pendant, an inverted keystone. Through some magic of the ancient people, all the colors of the spectrum had been made to ebb and flow like rainbows of living light. But something deeper than the beauty of this had impressed Chet. A master pilot does not study design of structures, even structures meant for travel through the air, without gaining knowledge of architectural fundamentals. His mind, subconsciously, had been following the strains and stresses through those superimposed curves. He turned abruptly to Haldgren with a question. It seemed to me, when I was following Anita, that we climbed upward. We were always running upward through the passage. We must be near the surface of the moon. Is that true? Haldgren nodded slowly. I think so, yes. In the great room out there are windows of quartz high in the ceiling. You could not see them from where you were, but they are there. I have seen them lighted. I think it was the light of the sun. In that case, said Chet quietly, I will ask you to open those doors. But they will come in, the big man protested. They will not come in. Chet turned to the girl. I will ask you, my dear, to accompany me, if you have faith. And to that Anita Hallgren granted not even a word of reply. She moved more swiftly than her brother to a controlling lever in the wall, and the ponderous doors swung slowly back. Beyond those opening doors a din of shrieks went abruptly still. They rose again in a squeaking babble of amazement and again were silenced as Chet Bullard stepped through the arch. Beside him was the slender figure of Anita, following 
was a stocky man whose unhandsome face was alight with a broad grin. "'Go to it, my boy,' Spud O'Malley was saying. "'I don't know what you're up to, but you'll be counting me in, and here's hoping you give those devils hell.' And behind them all, in great strides that brought him up with the rest, came Holgren, recovered now from the stupefaction that had held him momentarily. The four went silently where Chet led to the highest point of the great terraced rostrum. It was a stepped pyramid, Chet found, split in half, and the half placed against the wall. There was a stairway of smaller steps where priests, some thousands of years before, had made their way to the top, and the dust of centuries arose in smoky puffs as the four trod the path where the Holy Ones had gone. Below them the silence was ending in sibilant hissing calls as the black-winged beastmen watched that procession to the heights. Some few had launched themselves into the air. Chet saw when he turned. "'Tell them to go back,' he said to Anita. "'Tell them to listen to what I have to say.' There followed immediately the sound of Anita's soft voice, distorted to shrill sounds that echoed throughout the hall. "'Tell them now,' said Chet, when the hall was still, "'that I have come from another world. Tell them that I hold the thunderbolts of their ancient gods in my hands. Tell them that if they permit us to depart, we will go and leave them in peace. But if they try to harm us, the temple of their gods will be destroyed, and they too shall die. Tell them.' There was something of unwanted solemnity in the voice of the master pilot, something of quiet power and the dignity that became a messenger of the gods, as he gave his orders and faced the throng. And there was the patience of a god who was sickened of slaughter as he faced the discordant din and the threatening forward surge of the demon throng below. The girl had spoken and the air was black with her thrashing wings, while still Chet waited with outstretched hand. To the creatures below, the things, half men and half beasts, the shining tube in that extended hand meant nothing of threat, and even to the Irish pilot, who stood silently watching, the jester seemed futile. "'You've overplayed your hand, lad,' he said, in a tone of despair. "'Tis no little gun that will stop them now.' He was watching that hand and the shining tube, watching in amazement as he saw it swing slowly up toward the advancing horde, risen level with them in the air, up above their massed blackness of wings, on and up until the tube was pointing toward the base of a caverned pendant whose blending colors were fairy lights at play. And still the weapon waited, until the snarling faces of the enemy were close. Then the pistol cracked once, and the roar of its exploding shell came thundering after. For an instant all motion ceased. The very wings of the flying beasts seemed frozen, rigid in mid-flight. Then the whole of the vast room was in motion. A rush of escaping air whirled upward, the black-winged monsters in an inverted maelstrom of shrieking winds, 
and, falling to meet them, came an enormous pendant whose rioting colors seemed glorying in their own death. And with that came the swift disintegration of the vaulted arches, where the one central supporting point of their intricate maze had been shattered, till, with a crashing avalanche of sound that obliterated the thundering echoes of the detonite charge, the entire ceiling, that seemed now like the roof of a mighty world, whirled down to destruction. The pyramidal rostrum was at one side. A cascade of shattered rock fell like a curtain before it, the kindly curtain that hid from human sight the hideous slaughter of a demoniac mob. It was still falling. The imprisoned air was gathering added force to rush upward, screaming as if the very winds were insane with joy at their release. When the great arms of Firth Joyce Hallgren closed about the others of the group and half carried them, half hurled them down the slope. The echoing clang of great doors was still with them as the bellowing voice of Hallgren was heard. Get into your suits. The internal pressure is lost. Even as he spoke, the big man was clutching at his throat. Though the closing doors of the sacred room had given them respite. Quick, they have emergency doors. They will close them. But this part is cut off. In only minutes, there will be no air. But it was Chet who snapped shut the closure of Anita Hallgren's suit before he pulled on his own. And he grinned happily through the glass of his helmet as he saw the others safely encased, while their suits slowly bulged as the pressure of the air about them went down and their own tanks of oxygen took up the task of maintaining one atmosphere of pressure. In the silence, the great doors of the sacred room swung back. In silence, as before, the earth folk passed through where chaos had reigned. Chet checked them. He threw one arm clumsily around the figure of Anita Hallgren while he turned to her brother. The door is open, Frithjof Haldgren, he said, and pointed upward at the black vault of the heavens, where a massive ceiling had been. In that immensity of space, framed in the torn outlines of a shattered world, shone a great globe, a globe like a giant moon. The earth, unbelievably bright, was beckoning them once more. The door is open, Chet repeated. Do you still wish to go home? End of chapter 10